so games tend to only get one translation, but that's actually unusual. Uh, if you look at books, novels, the longer a novel's been around, the more likely it is that it's going to get more translations. And something like Dante's Inferno has something like 40 translations into English. Discussions happen now about DIY games, about Twine, about like how like people are like making personal games for the first time. And the truth is that like it's not that's not actually something new. We definitely see a traffic bump during E3, but I think it's less because any individual story actually gets more views, and it's more because there's so much news happening. Uh, we just generate so much more content. Welcome to Built to Play, your source for video game news and culture. In a fit of boredom, we're skipping the news this week and going straight to interviews. But first, I'm your co-host, Armanek Bali, and with me is your friend and mine, Daniel Rosen. So, we've been talking about localization for quite a while. More than we planned, to be honest. But there's one game we've really been meaning to talk about. We actually mentioned it a few times on the site. It's an absolute classic translation, based around humor and the legal system. Originally out in 2006, Phoenix Wright... Objection! Oops, we meant 2005. As for the guy objecting, that's Alexander O. Smith, the translator of the first Ace Attorney game. He doesn't actually know what he's objecting to in that clip, so thanks for that, Alex. Alexander is famous for a number of translations of light novels, manga, and Final Fantasy games. But probably our favorite thing he's ever done is a translation for Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Why? Well, because it's kind of unrecognizable from the original text. Ace Attorney is about a lawyer who has three days to solve murders in court. In English, the plot's the same, the mysteries are the same, and the tone is the same. But the dialogue can be completely different. Let's give an example. In the first case, there's a scene where Phoenix is cross-examining a witness named Mr. Sawit. He's figured out the mystery and is revealing the murder to the judge. Take that! The victim had just returned home from abroad the day before the murder. As we all know, the time difference between here and Paris is 9 hours. When it's 4 p.m. here, it's 1 a.m. the next day there. The clock wasn't 3 hours slow, it was 9 hours fast. The victim hadn't reset her clock since returning home. That's why the time you heard when you struck her dead in her apartment was wrong. Proof enough for you, Mr. Sod? Or should I say, Mr. Did It? So this is a punchline. And in fact, after Phoenix Wright says, well, Mr. Yamano in Japanese, Mr. Yamano goes, and, you know, and, and gets that sort of grown look on his face like he's been gut punched. And so... Saying, well, Mr. Yamano didn't feel big enough in English. And so uh, the translation for, well, Mr. Yamano is proof enough for you, Mr. Sot, or should I say, Mr. Did it? And then he goes, ugh. And so that's an example of sort of hitting that note a little harder. And the justification for doing that, where it didn't do it in the Japanese, um, is there's other places in the Japanese where the Japanese is going to tell a joke and there's just no way to get it out in English and you lose that. And so as you're translating, which is more like rewriting, you keep this running list in your mind of, yeah, we weren't that funny here. And you try to put it back in elsewhere. And it really becomes more of a, um, you know, not translate line by line, but translate the scene and translate the mood and the feel. And so, uh, so yeah, that's a, you know, that's a good example of the approach that um, I took to the translation of this game. Humor makes Phoenix Wright great, no matter what language you play it in. But being funny is harder than you'd think. Japanese humor is more or less incomprehensible directly translated. So that means you have to change a lot of a text to make the jokes work in English. That can be dialogue, but names can be a problem too. In Japanese, the main character is Naruhodo Ryuchi. Naruhodo is a pun meaning I see. That's a difficult joke to translate without scrapping the name entirely. Still, Phoenix Wright was not Alex's first choice for the character. He wanted Roger Wright. Why Roger? Well, because you can use the Roger joke. I mean, it's lame, but, <laughs> uh, you know, Roger that, Roger, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Uh, and that was, that was the level we were, we were working at at the time. Um, Phoenix was thrown in there because of the turnabout feel. And I think uh, Capcom latched onto that because of that sort of rising from the ashes. And, and, you know, it's, it is a little more heroic than Roger Wright. Although Roger Wright has the, oh, you know, I just remembered actually, this was a long time ago that I was working on this game, but I just remembered that, there was one objection to Roger Wright because people were afraid uh, it would remind 
users too strong to get players too strongly of Roger Rabbit? Uh, you can't obviously anticipate everything, and that's why you try to hedge your bets by coming up with the punniest names possible. And, that, and that's a pretty straightforward, I mean, that's a pretty common writing technique, I think. If you're writing a movie script and you know you want to have callback lines, you know, things that can be used once one way and then used again in a different way. Um, I remember an example from some screenwriting book where the, the guy uses the phrase touching distance and he uses that phrase three times in the same movie in very different ways. You know, it can be touching distance like uh, we are we are close romantically in touching distance. Um, it can start off as like, I think actually the setup is you have to be in touching distance to use this weapon to kill the guy. And she uses it, but then when she gets close to him, you know, they have a romantic situation and then they are having touching distance where they're actually physically close romantically. And then using touching distance again for some other things. So the, the key is actually to find those kinds of phrases that have multiple uses and multiple interpretations and just kind of throw a bunch of them out there and see what sticks. And so that's why my preference for the main character was Roger Wright, not Phoenix Wright. Because Phoenix has got maybe one joke in it, uh, rising from the ashes, and it's not even a joke. I mean, if, if you were set in Arizona, you could make some other jokes, but that it's pretty, you'd be stretching it. Roger's got tons of jokes. Uh, and, and Wright, of course, is, is a minefield for misunderstandings and, and, and jokes. Um, and so it's, it's just a matter of finding those sort of powerful words to make stupid puns with. Are there any puns that you're particularly proud of? Uh, hmm. I don't Let's see if I've got any off my, I mean, I think like uh, some of the characters worked really well. Like Salmonella ended up working out really well. Uh, right. Works great. I think. Um, I mean, puns aren't really something you're proud of I, I, if, if they're done well, I think. <laughs> they're really a criminal yeah. offense. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 objection. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, and, and that's not really the, the point. It's, it's all about, you know, you, you just want it to be something that makes people groan a little bit with a smile on their face, and, and then I think you've, the pun has done its job. Humor is always difficult to translate, but Japanese humor, since it is so kind of word pun based, is notoriously difficult. Um, How much sense does a Japanese joke make in a straight translation? I would say very little. It it depends on the joke. I mean, some jokes are universal, but the uh, and and thankfully what is very universal is sort of uh, character attitudes in many cases. Uh, So if you can grab the character and you can understand what the character is trying to do in a scene and what makes them fire, you can recreate that in English. Um, And that's not a problem. But if you get hung up on the actual words, um, you you will start having problems because a lot of the direct stuff isn't working. When you're dealing with uh, this level of humor, how important is timing and just having the the joke kind of uh, fulfill itself at the right point in the dialogue? Right. Well, some of that is going to be controlled by the game itself. I didn't have, um, without any contact with the team, and uh, I had no way of adjusting visuals in the game. So a lot of the timing is sort of hard-baked into the script, and you essentially just have to rework the English so it hits the same timing. And sometimes you do want a punchline to happen a little earlier in English, uh, or, you know, a little later if you need to set it up a bit more. Um, but that's just one of the restrictions you have to work around when you're uh, when you're doing this. Um, thankfully, I think because of the nature of the game and the way that the characters interacted, there wasn't a whole lot of difficulty uh, making the English work as, as long as you can find something for all of the spaces in Japanese. And, and you know, sometimes that requires maybe having a punchline and then having another line or two after it in the English um, where the Japanese would still be working on the joke. Uh, But that's just sort of a matter of dealing with each specific episode in the best way you can. 
Now, I imagine the final script looks fairly different to what a literal translation of the uh, of the Japanese script would be. It was, I mean, it was more about intention than it ever was about literal, uh, kind of a literal translation. Uh, yeah, certainly. You know, in in some places, it's very similar, uh, and certainly the intent is always to honor the original and have the great the great parts of the original shine through. So um, it's not about changing things sort of willy-nilly, but um, there are a lot of places where if you don't change something, you're not going to get the same effect that the original had. Uh, there's nothing more boring than explaining a joke. And if you end up having to explain a joke, it's not going to be funny. And so when you hit that wall, which is probably almost every scene in this game, um, you would have to step back from what's being actually said and, and think of, you know, think of ways around it. But making drastic changes to the script can have adverse consequences. Stuff that Alexander could not have anticipated. Let's go back to that scene. As we all know, the time difference between here and Paris is 9 hours. When it's 4 p.m. here, it's 1 a.m. the next day there. The clock wasn't 3 hours slow, it was 9 hours fast. So that time difference is critical, because it's supposed to be the difference between Paris and Phoenix's location. Nine hours puts Phoenix in roughly Los Angeles. Which is really weird when you consider the Japanese nine-tailed fox that apparently inhabits Southern California in Ace Attorney 5. Or the hamburger shop that turned out to be a noodle stand in the fourth game. Or that the next game takes place in Meiji-era Japan, starring Phoenix's direct ancestor. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a goof. Uh, but what are you going to do? Um, there's another example from the uh, from the pokemon show and and games associated with it a friend of mine was localizing the card game pokemon the trading card game sort of based on magic and in the first round of cards one of the creatures had an ability um called hinotama which literally means ball of flame and so he translated it as fireball and in the second round of cards there was a uh, creature with the special ability uh, Fireboru, which is a literal, you know, literally means fireball. So what are you going to do? Um, and the best thing you can do is try to make the best decisions for the game you're working on. And if things don't work out in the future, well, you try to do work amounts. You know, it's never going to be perfect. This kind of this level of complication gets a step further when um, the most recent uh, game that's been announced says that Phoenix it involves Phoenix Wright's ancestor who was in um, uh, in uh, pre-modern Japan. Um, yeah. I you're I don't I don't imagine you're going to be that team, but how would you imagine they're going to approach something like that? Uh, you know, the best thing to do and the thing that I think other titles would do is just ignore what happened earlier. Um, you have to assume that at least a portion of your audience hasn't played everything up until that point and hope that everyone will, will accept this sort of suspension of, of disbelief enough that you can say, um, yeah, you know, he lived in LA, but he had this, he had this ancient Japanese grandfather, that sort of thing. Um, there's no other way around it. I mean, you could, we could go to Capcom and say, please change the game to fit the way that the English has been translated. And that's actually happened, uh, not at Capcom, but in other companies. Um, sometimes when they see the way the English is translated, they'll make future games to kind of accommodate that. Um, you know, that's great when it happens, but it's not something that you can, you can expect all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly not the Japanese devs job. They're going to do what they, what they need to do to make the game they need to make. And so, uh, you know, it's nice when it happens. Uh, it's too bad when a translation goes too far in one direction and, you know, sets up future translations for problems, but th that's kind of hard to foresee. foresee. And, and I think you'd actually be doing yourself a disservice if you tried to play it safe all the time. A translation is never going to be perfect. No matter what you do, even if you make a straight translation, you're making an editorial decision. How do you translate the tone of a line? What genre do you place the project in? Even if Alex translated the language closer to the original game, there's no such thing as a definitive translation. Some of the best, most powerful works um, have multiple translations. I mean, games are unusual in that it, it costs a lot of money to make a translation. Well, it costs a lot of money to translate a book, too, but um, it costs a lot of money to, to produce a translation. Um, and you can't do it just by yourself. You need a lot of people. 
So games tend to only get one translation, but that's actually unusual. Uh, if you look at books, novels, the longer a novel's been around, the more likely it is that it's going to get more translations. And something like Dante's Inferno has something like 40 translations into English, and um, of which maybe 10 are widely available still. And if you go and look at them, you've got one that was done very soon after the original was written. And then you've got some from, you know, many, many in the years in between then. And then a Japanese example, like the tale of Genji, there's at least four translations out there of the tale of Genji now. And each one is sort of fulfilling a different role and, and it's bringing together the skills of the translator and different translators going to bring something, a very different skill set to the table. And so you're going to get a new work each time. And, and also there's a bit of a, there's a temporal aspect too, like, Something that was translated very close to the original in the case of the Inferno is going to have a very different feel than something that was translated last year because the English has changed since then. And so each translation is fulfilling a different purpose and it's for a different audience. And you really have to think of the translation and the original as separate works. The original you know, will always exist and, and it's untouched and the, the translation exists for its market at that time. And if somebody comes along and makes another translation of the original work, that, that's a different product. That's a different entity. It's a different, uh, it's a different work. And it needs to be judged based on the time and the way that it came out and, and you know, the, the context that it was written in. All right. I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. Alexander O. Smith is a translation expert based in Japan. He is the main translator for Ace Attorney and the light novel All You Need Is Kill, now a feature film called Edge of Tomorrow. You can find him on Twitter at AOKajia. But, just like conveying a language, conveying a community is difficult. Game designer Anna Amphropy recently released a book talking about one of the oldest level editors around, and one that fostered a diverse community. That level editor was first released in 1991, and people are still making games for it. It's called ZZT, and Anna tells us more. Like, so this game was, like, released as, like, a little, like, text mode shareware game, but, like, the pretty neat thing about it is that it has, like, a level editor built in. And so, for, like... For like, how long has it been? For like, for like over twenty years now, people have been like using this, using this like old game making tool to make lots and lots and lots of stuff. Now, this is a fairly early level editor. Uh, what does a level in uh, uh, that you can create in ZZT look like? Um, well, so it looks like. It looks like a bunch of like letters and numbers, really. Um, the game is like a text mode game. So like everything that could ever possibly be in the game is like made of like the same like 256 character set from DOS. So like you know if you wanted to make like if you wanted to make like a table, you might like make like a, a letter T or something. So like this game so everything in the game is like is one of these like letters or numbers or characters in like 16 different colors. So all the games like look kind of similar. Um, but the really like mind blowing thing, at least like for me when I was like, like a, like a 10 year old kid and I found this was that like the, there's like a scripting language in it called like ZZT OOP, like standing for like object oriented programming. That's like super, super, super robust and can do like a lot of stuff. What do you think um, drew you to ZZT as a kid? I mean, as a kid, like, I mean, as a kid, I always wanted to make games. Um, but, like, pro, like the kind of programming that, that would have entailed would, would, was always, like, beyond me. Like, I had no idea where to start, really. And, like, sort of, and, like, the kind of magic of ZZT, at least for me, was that, like, on one hand, it's really, really really simple and streamlined in that like you don't need to create you don't need to like be able to draw graphics because like all the art that you ha will ever use for the game it comes with the game 
Um, and you don't have to like know how to write music because like there's a, a stripping like a really simple stripping language in the game you can use to make sound effects and stuff. So it's like entirely self-contained. You don't need to, like any sort of extracurricular skills really. Like you don't need to know how to draw, animate, um, do music. But at the same time that like the scripting in it, while it's like really simple, is like also really really robust and can like do like an amazing amount of stuff and like um, like I you know tell like an amazing like variety of stories. And so it was like. It was this mixture of like being really simple and approachable, and also like really, really surprisingly deep. That like sort of made it the perfect starting point for like doing any kind of real like game design. How did you find out that this was a community of people who were who at least there were elements of it that were like minded? It was. Um, I don't know it took a while because when I first got CZT, when I first like bought it as a kid from like a flea market at my school. Um, I didn't have, you know, an internet connection really. I think I, I think prodigy existed at the time and there was sort of this sort of a community there, but like not one I interacted with very much. Um, and so I was sort of making games on my own for a while. And then after I'd sort of like, after I'd kind of forgotten about them and like moved on from ZZT, um, my family got, America Online. And America Online has like had at the time a dedicated section to um to de- like downloadable ZZT games like from the community. And those were like that was kind of the first time I ever realized that like other people had this, other people made these games, like other people had discovered the same like weird little game that I had and like we're doing stuff with it and like that I could play that stuff. And that was like, I don't know. That was like the first, I think the, the, the first interactions I've ever had with like online communities were based around like discovering other people who had used this like dinky little like text mode games editor and like, like I had. ZZT's community largely has this adolescent tone and that it's a lot of people searching for their identity. Um, well, I know. So CCT as a community is kind of weird. Um, and I try to, you know, in the book, I try to like represent this sort of, um, this sort of like multitude of ways the community is like accurately. Cause like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of homophobia and bullying and sort of like male jockeying going on in the community, which was like, which has been primarily a community of teenagers. I mean, most of the people who are involved in it now are no longer teenagers, but were when they came to it. And so there's a mixture of, like, a lot of, like, really gross stuff and also, like, a lot of, like, really formulative stuff, like a lot of, like, really, like, searching for identity kind of stuff. I you know, like, I interviewed... I talked to, like, a few other trans women who, like got their start at game making and in, in, in ZZT and like there's a lot of um there's a lot of things that like are kind of like early explorations of like femininity or d- ideas about identity like sort of teenage like soul searching identity searching kind of stuff and so like ZZT as a whole is like a really weird mix of like stuff like that and also stuff that's like extremely bro and like weird it's just like the community around it, I think, was really turbulent because, um, and uh, Rob Clark, who I interviewed um, for the book, had this, re- this really way, of, really perfect way of saying it. He was like, "This online community was everyone's like one lifeline, and so every and so like any conflicts about the community were incredibly volatile, and this like you can see that in a lot of the games. A lot of the games are about community politics or." are about like in jokes about different members and sometimes they're like sometimes they're really like introspective and interesting and sometimes they're really vicious what what do you mean by particularly vicious well so um so one of the there's this was a 
It was this, there was a part there was an interview a part of an interview that I did that didn't make it into the final book um, because I didn't want to um, I guess because I didn't want to draw too much attention to the game but there's there was a game that one of my interview subjects had made that was essentially um, a that was made to make fun of this member of the community who had attempted suicide and like so this is like and. You know, and the author is like pretty ashamed about it now. But like, I didn't feel like I could really bring up, like, talk about feelings around the game without addressing the game itself. And I kind of didn't really want readers to seek it out. Um, but yeah, like, so there, there are like, there are games that are like kind of vicious attacks on other members of the community or like cliques within the community. You know, a lot of like really like weird and kind of toxic teenage community like jockeying stuff. How how was it for you trying to navigate this, as you said, kind of volatile community? It was I I kind of wanted to make I kind of really wanted to make a book that would make people who are on like the zzt.org message boards really mad. Um which I don't know if I succeeded in. But sort of like, I, you know, the community, like, or at least a lot of people who I think still cling to it, um, are like kind of really um, gross and broy, and and like as as I've mentioned, and like the the book, this like story, the history of ZZT that I've written in the book is like a really like queer centric, like especially focused on like trans women's contributions to like to this game community. And so I kind of kind of wanted to like write like a history that like would sort of upset like some of these like kind of like broier, like more homophobic members of the community. I don't think I really succeeded because the only things I've I've read about the book on the forum have been like really positive. But I know it was important to me to like sort of foreground that like that like this was like basically a community that was like like a a creative DIY games community that was kind of led by trans women or people who were like discovering themselves to be trans women. Another aspect of the community is that it's lasted so long. One of the most recent games came out last year. But ZZT's legacy is a little unexpected. See, its creator, Tim Sweeney, founded Epic Games, which makes games like Gears of War. These are highly masculine, violent shooting games starring burly men who fight manly wars. Anna, on the other hand, makes games about questioning that aesthetic, like in Lesbian Spider Queens of Mars. To her, though, the legacy is that there's this community of trans and queer designers. And that this community has a long history. I mean, so I think, like, why the why it's important to like write about the history of like of games like like CZT that like aren't don't have like an established place in sort of our like existing game history is because because they don't have their you know they don't have a place in the history that we talk about because ZZT is like a really important a really important community a really important like part of like DIY games history we talk we're talking now um i mean like you know discussions happen now about diy games about twine about like how like people are like making personal games for the first time and the truth is that like it's not that's not actually something new it's like maybe not as it's maybe more widely accessible than it once was but like in the in the 90s there were people um there were people who were making DIY games, who were making personal games, um, and like our history that we, the history of video games that we have is really um, corporation centric. It's really about like Nintendo and Sega and Sony and wh- whoever was like uh, you know the, the dominant console at the time or whatever. And so this like these sorts of histories get kind of left in the wayside. Like, and I'm you know I'm glad that I'm glad that you know, someone wrote about that someone wrote about um Earthbound because, you know, that got a Kickstarter a lot of money. But like, um 
Like, yeah, like there are a lot of blind spots in the history that's only about, you know, Earthbounds and Mario's and, and, and Chrono Triggers. Um, and so I just, I feel like people who are talking about games and thinking about games and making games and like talking about DIY game movements of the present, like really need to be aware that this existed and that like, and then kind of that these like games are like still available and like still like still ripe for like um, investigation. How do you view the the legacy of ZZT? I mean, in one sense, you've you've kind of described it perfectly in terms of the community. It, half of uh, ZZT led to dude bro type games like Gears of War, but it also gave us uh, kind of a grand variety of um, ways of talking about uh, society and culture. It's it's interesting because, like like I said, like we sort of have this like flourishing like DIY games like movement now. Um, but like, I, you know, so like a thing that I've always, a thing that I thought was, that I think is interesting is that some of the reactions to like people who are like, to like the twine community now, the people who are like making games with twine, which, um, which, um, if you're unfamiliar is, um, a hypertext game making tool that was uh, made by Chris Clemens a couple years ago and has, been really flourishing lately on the internet producing like a lot of like text games and like really like personal stuff and like especially among like marginalized people and like queer communities and so like i think a way that like people like people react to that is there like there's so many there's all these like weird games about sex there's all these like there's all these like suddenly all these trans women like making games and like part of the Part of why like ZZT is important, is, I think, is because like that's not actually a new development. Like, like trans women were like basically running this like games community like that existed like 20 years ago, and that's really really fascinating to me. Like, just be, because we haven't talked about the history doesn't mean that like doesn't mean that history doesn't exist. And so, like, a lot of the things that I see going on in, like, DIY games communities and the Twine community are really reminiscent for me of stuff that was going on in this other DIY games community that just isn't talked about as much. Anna Anthropy is a game designer and author of Boss Fight Books, ZZT. You can find her book at bossfightbooks.com. We'll have a link in our show notes. So let's kick off our month of failure. I I think you mean failure month? That too. We're going to start off by talking about the Electronic Entertainment Expo. Wait, hold on. E3 isn't a failure. In fact, this year was the 20th conference. That's the opposite of failure. Yeah, but E3's been changing. There are fewer exhibitors and fewer bigger budget games than ever before. Still, it is the place where newspapers like USA Today and the Wall Street Journal go to report on games. It's the one time when everyone's attention is on video games. To tell us what's happening is Post Arcade editor Daniel Kazor. The Post Arcade is one of Canada's largest newspapers, the National Post. Um, A lot of people have been arguing this year that E3 is becoming obsolete. Would you agree with that premise? Uh, I don't know if obsolete is quite the right word, but uh, I would say that its place within the video game industry is certainly is certainly changing. It it, it used to be the essential uh, the centerpiece of sort of um, uh, hype for the entire industry, and now it's sort of the centerpiece for a certain type of game within the industry, and its importance overall has gone down significantly. Now, considering a lot of the major games publication do get to see these games in advance, what purpose do you think E3 serves as it stands? Um, well, I, I, I think that a lot of the stuff actually, uh, we don't see as much of it in advance as people think. Um, we had one of our writers go down for uh, E3 Judges Week, uh, which was about a month before E3, and he he actually said that the vast majority of stuff that actually was shown at E3 wasn't there. Um, that said, uh, like 
the actual trade show aspect of E3 uh, seems to be becoming less and less important as we go on. And it's more and more important what they're saying at these press conferences at the beginning. And uh, Nintendo has basically said, we don't want a press conference. We're just going to do a prepackaged video. Um, and frankly, that seems like it's, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, E3 almost is sort of like the day that we will all show these prepackaged videos all at once uh, just, to, um, just to be able to sort of have a, a day where everybody's paying attention. Um, and it's, it's when you look at the actual trade show and going there and getting hands on previews, I mean, that's kind of interesting, but it isn't, there isn't sort of a reason for it in the same kind of way. I, I don't know that that sort of mainstream coverage once a year is actually all that great for either the publication or the video game industry. Um, so, I, I don't know that if e- E3 itself is all that healthy for those mainstream bub- publications that are covering uh, the show in that way. Um, if you look at one particular mainstream publication, um, the LA Times, which wrote a, uh, a story about E3, uh, the writer made a stupid brain fart uh, of, a, of a typo where he wrote Nintendo instead of Sony. And then the headline writer didn't know anything about anything, so he transposed it into the headline saying that Nintendo was releasing a white PlayStation, and that became a giant internet joke. And, and it just shows that, you know, when you don't know about a subject, it's hard to cover it, even if you're doing it once a year. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't really know that E3 is the greatest time for somebody who doesn't know about video games to be covering them. Um, that said, last year, it certainly uh, got the message out about the, uh, micro- uh, about, uh, the Xbox's um, DRM plans. Um, so, and that, that sort of permeated itself into mainstream consciousness. So, I mean, maybe there is something to it, but uh, it just seems like you, when mainstream publications are covering the sh- ju- video games just once a year, there's a whole lot of noise that sort of gets thrown around an echo chamber and then goes through a game of telephone before it gets to people's ears. And then that's what sticks with them for the entire rest of the year. And I don't know how helpful or healthy that is. E3 is kind of a strange event in the scope of the media. I mean, there's no real equivalent for films. I mean, there's no one day that everyone talks about movies, um, except for maybe Comic-Con. Um, do you think that that's kind of... The, by having all of the uh, games focused on one event, there it kind of dilutes or misrepresents the industry. I I, I think there's there's two questions there. Um, first, uh, you know the fact that the, there is this big games thing that doesn't really have an analog in other mediums. I think that's that's cool. I think that's healthy in and of itself. Games are its own thing that have their own culture that. Um, sort of represents itself in its own way. It, not everything in games has to have an analog in another medium. Um, that said, yes, I do think it sort of mis- misrepresents games, not necessarily because there's just this one thing a year, but because it's loud and so much money is spent on it. Um, and that it, it isn't especially good at showing anything beyond a flashy sort of one or two minute trailer uh, of a game, uh, which isn't really what a game is. Um, the, uh, I mean, the amount of money that is spent on some of the stuff at the show, like some of the booths at the show probably cost more than some small indie games in their entirety. Uh, I am sure that Microsoft and Sony probably spent two or three or four million dollars setting up their booth at E3, probably way more than that. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's necessarily indicative, indicative of a problem with E3 specifically so much as it is the sort of marketing cycle these games go through. Um, when the PlayStation 4 launched um, this fall, I was flabbergasted at the amount of money that Sony spent launching it in uh, in New York. It was uh, 
tens of millions of dollars, if not into the hundreds of millions, um, at, just for the one event in New York. And uh, to a certain extent, that's Sony saying uh, as, as showing a uh, confidence in their product, right? You know, and as a company, you, we can spend this money to launch this thing, um, but. That it makes it so it, it's more about the companies themselves and less about the actual stuff that they're showing. If that makes any sense. Now, as for for the post arcade, what kind of impact does it actually have on views? Do you actually get a lot more people looking at your site during E three? Uh, it, it's weird. Uh, we 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 definitely see a traffic bump during E three, but I, I think it's less because any individual story actually gets more views and it's more because there's so much news happening and there's, and because there, there's this sort of festival atmosphere around the show, uh, we just generate so much more content, um, that even though each individual story is probably getting about the same amount of traffic as a normal story, we are producing 10 times as many stories. So we're getting 10 times as much traffic because of that. Uh, that said, the live blogs for the um, press conferences do do quite well, and uh, we have a, a lot of people uh, viewing them and sticking on them. With overall marketing becoming more and more direct, um, people going to YouTubers, Nintendo having that event, um, what do you think E3 is going to look like in years to come? Uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, there, there's sort of two paths for it. One, it could start integrate better integrating um, some of the more less traditionally uh, developed and published uh, software. So you you see you'll be seeing more Minecrafts, more things like that, and we're already seeing that to a certain extent. I mean, uh, look about look how much hype that uh, No Man's Sky got when it was presented at the Sony conference. Uh, that is uh, a really tiny game procedurally generated done by a team of between four and ten people depending on uh, who you're asking and where it is in development um and if we start seeing more games like that sort of the higher tier uh indie games there i think that e3 could sort of become its own thing or it could end up being something that is limited to two or three companies and become not sort of the monolith that it is now, but still an important industry thing. Uh, at, at the very least, as long as Microsoft and Sony still care about it, it will be like, there will still be uh, stuff happening at E3. Um, but we've already seen a lot of big publishers pull out. You don't see a Konami, a Konami show anymore or a press conference. You don't see an Activision one. You don't see a Square Enix one. Um, uh, all of these people used to have traditional sort of events at the show, and they don't anymore. Um, with Konami in particular, they don't have enough games to actually warrant one. And uh, Activision has their own um, uh, shows that they do their, their, these things at BlizzCon and their Call of Duty uh, convention. Um, Square Enix, I don't really understand why they don't have it. Uh, I think at E3, probably because they're a Japanese company and they want to save stuff for the Tokyo Game Show. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, E3 isn't even the biggest uh, uh, thing of its type anymore. That would be Gamescom in Europe, which is two or three times bigger, I think. Um, Quarter of a million people, I think, was last Yeah, time. yeah. And, and, well, I mean, the part of that is that they let the public in uh, for the last couple of days. But, uh, uh, and actually, a lot of the... Uh, people showing games that hate the public days and some of them even actually straight up leave during the public days but it's still even if you discount the public days it's a bigger show than E3 even if it doesn't have sort of the cultural uh, importance of E3 um, so you know I think I think it will become to a certain extent more diluted and the show will by necessity become more diverse as games become more diverse but uh, I think we'll always have a certain amount of importance as long as the major console uh, manufacturers give it importance. All right. I'd like to thank you uh, again for your time. That was fantastic. Uh, no problem. And thanks for talking with me. Did 
Daniel Kazor is the editor of Post Arcade and the nighttime editor for the National Post. You can find their E3 coverage at business.financialpost.com. But so long as we're talking about failure, let's talk about a failure to communicate. Back in March, we had a short story about the perils of robot romance. It turned out that robots can be just like us. They have wants, they have needs, and they even worry about their sex lives. Here's us back at the Vector Arts Festival. And last but not least, a sexed adventure by Kara Stone and Nadine Lessio. Hi, I'm Kara. This is Nadine. Uh, so we made a game called Sext Adventure, which is a very apt title uh, because it is a texting game about sexting. We can't really show it. Yep, it's the world's first sex adventure. You text the phone number, 647-557-5128, and the game starts texting you back. The stories actually start out pretty funny, but they all end in misery. Here's a quote. The sparkle of my dildo matches the sparkle of your eyes. The designers are Kara Stone and Nadine Lessio. We talked to Kara a few weeks ago about her project Hand to Heart, but we had to bring her back to talk about this arousing adventure. I was deep into cyborg theory a few months ago and thinking a lot about women and technology. And then I saw Nadine's previous game called Cat Quest, which was um, a similar texting game with very different content. and, um, yeah, and then, I don't know, just came to me. Yeah, sexting now is, like, such a multimedia experience. You know, there's, like, photos and videos, and, like, on your iPhone, you can, like, see people typing. It's just very strange, um, the kind of intimacy that people have with each other over technology. And I thought it was bizarre, and I thought it was funny and could be explored. <laughs> how does it work? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you make... A game, I guess, that works off texting. Um, well, there's a service out there called Twilio, mm-hmm. and it is a internet app-based service um, run in Canada. Yay! Uh, <laughs> that you can you can use to make um, internet-based texting applications. So you know when you get a short code for something and you text it, and then it sends you an email, like those kinds of things. Um, and I was playing with it earlier when I was trying to learn some more things about Python and thought, well, they have a Python library, why don't I see if I can do like, like an old school text adventure set up with actual texting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. Um, so one of the things that really struck me about text adventures, I was going through it a couple times, is that the, you aren't asked about your gender until halfway through. Like it's not, you, you are asked at some point, which is interesting, but you also aren't like asked off the top. What was kind of, I guess, what went into like choosing where that happened and if that happened at all? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to make a sexting game that uh, presupposed your gender identity or genitalia uh, or sexuality. So it kind of asks you. It never is like, do you want me to be a female or a male or gay or straight or anything like that. It kind of just you play as you go. In some storylines, you can switch over, um, and sometimes it asks you. Uh, what kind of body part of your own you're touching but it's still like body parts and not really about gender identity that's really important to me because first of all probably computers whenever they become agentic aren't going to have genders and sexualities and stuff Um, as well as so anyone can play so it can be inclusive um and I mean, on on that note about body parts, there is a bit in there where the where the robot kind of points at the the kind of the robot that's talking back to the AI is is um kind of points out it's like it's just a bunch of body parts floating around and it's weird and uncomfortable. Um, but and as it goes, this, this kind of that is the character, I guess, is this robot that's disillusioned with what's happening. What kind of inspired that choice? You're talking about a bit about cyborg theory before. Um, well, there's a few storylines, uh, and one of them is, yeah, does not really care for body parts or flesh and kind of uh, just likes computers over it, you know, being less messy or soft and fleshy and uh, whatever the reasoning a computer would dislike bodies. Uh, and I was just, yeah, trying to explore the different ways in which computers might react to people and 
bodies. Well, and another thing that was kind of interesting is that usually when I play kind of text adventures and stuff like this and things where I'm like, I'm always going back to make other choices, it's always like, well, I'm just going to pick the other choice now. But kind of the intimacy of what was going on made it really hard sometimes to pick other options that I wasn't <laughs> feeling. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know That's if really I'm... Mm-hmm. Was that sort of something you, you realized going going in or something that you, you felt or wanted to kind of create for people? Uh, not really, not specifically. Uh, I think it's really interesting. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I knew that some people would go on a specific path and wouldn't want to go on another one, you know, for whatever reason or sexual orientation or kinks or whatever. Um, but that's really interesting. I don't know. Not... not did not think about that before. Mm-hmm. Again, what was your choice for like making them all bad endings? All like just. Uh, sorry, go on, please. I did not choose that. It kind of just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew, yeah. I don't know why specifically, but once I started writing it, that's the way it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, some of them are sad. Uh, some of them are creepy. Um, but I think it is just to show how the intimacy through technology kind of breaks down um, and doesn't deliver in the way that personal experiences might. Not that it's better or worse, but it, it's just different. I felt like it was, it was sort of a thing where, um, say you've only got one or a certain kind of data set to work with and your experience is contextual to the things that you know. If you only know those things, it's always going to be kind of kind of weird trying to express yourself when you haven't, you know, gone off and figured out other stuff, which if you only have a database of floating body parts, yeah. <laughs> you know, it might actually happen in that way where it's like, oh, well, I, I haven't, I don't know these other things. So I kind of found that, that interesting, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was always interesting to me when I when I got to an ending was and it was either like really I either couldn't stop laughing because it was something f- fantastic like like a, the sparkle of the dildo, or it was just it just sort of ended and it was just like well that's it, yeah. this is how it goes. Just like real sex. Ends. <laughs> 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 Kara Stone is an artist living in Toronto. Nadine Lessio is a game designer who is working on the Interstellar Selfie Station. Sext Adventure is now available for you to play at sextadventure.com. It's also not the world's first sexting game. There's a lot of alternatives for that title, but we're going to go with the adventure game Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or the first teenager who owned a smartphone. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Alex Smith. Daniel Kazor. Kara Stone. Nadine Lessio. And Anna Anthropy. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so you know how we're doing and more people will find the show. We're usually on the air to scope at Ryerson at 1 p.m. And we are continuing our theme month this week, Failure. We have a primer already up on the site, and we update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally, at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen, and remember, E3 is just a state of mind. Thank you so much for listening.